0: and the world of your dreams. Today, my guest is Laura Heacock. Laura is a leadership coach who brings over 20 years experience in corporate America. She works with professionals and companies to help them bring kindness into business. Laura's background includes working in companies ranging from small, privately held firms to multinational organizations. In over a decade of leadership in the talent acquisition industry, she managed geographically dispersed teams and mentored and coached associates in the U.S. and abroad. Laura has an MBA, an ICF credentialed coach, award-winning writer, speaker, author of the book Practical Kindness, and co-host of the podcast Doing Good Business. Laura is obsessed with how we change the culture of corporate America from one that promotes busyness and burnout as status symbols to one that's rooted in kindness and humanity. Using her kind method, Laura works with leaders at the human level so they can create teams and lives that thrive. You can download the kind methodology at Laura Heacock, dot com. And her daily doses of kindness at kindovermatter.com. And additionally, each episode, I'm going to be raising awareness for a charity or organization of my guest choice. This episode, the charity is Heroic Gardens. So if you feel called to make a contribution and donate Heroic Gardens, the link is in the show notes. And in this conversation, we talk about all the wonderful things that Laura has outlined in her bio. We talk about the difference between niceness and kindness, and how lots of big companies promote niceness and water cooler talk, where we're polite but not kindness, where we're really showing up with bold authenticity and saying what's true and loving to the other person. And sometimes it could be really challenging and compassionately. Activating someone to show up differently rather than ways that we people-please and say what we think we're supposed to say. And that could be very energetically taxing and it leads to gossiping and withholding and all sorts of things that lead to toxic cultures in the workplace. We talk about the power of and and moving away from binary thinking. A lot of times we get pegged into these either-or types of scenarios where we think that if one thing exists, the other can't possibly. And Lara speaks really eloquently to polarities and the value of the word and. So I'm not going to keep rambling on. I think Lara does an amazing job of articulating everything that's important about her work. And this is another one of those episodes that you're going to want to take some notes on because she gives really practical ways that we can show up to have meaningful, challenging conversations, whether it's in the workplace or in our personal life. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath and enjoy what Laura has for us. Laura, it is such a pleasure to have you and welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I have too. And uh, ever since I came across your work, I've been, I've been reflecting on how I can show up differently and, and with more kindness. And the distinction between kindness and niceness is, is something that's come on my radar and I've been paying attention to. But I want to put a pin in that. And before we dive right into your work, I'd love to know a little bit about you're come from and when you were growing up, what you want to be. And mm-hmm. the, the way I start almost every interview is by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up?
1: Yeah. So I'm an only child. So my dinner table was just me and well, actually my dinner table looked different. So I'll give you a few different dinner table options for part of my childhood. I live in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. And for part of my childhood, my dad actually worked in Illinois. So he was only home a couple weekends a month then for another part he did work at home but his job involved a lot of travel so he was gone several nights a week i lived in the suburbs of philadelphia my mom worked in the city so she you know often wasn't home until like 6:30 or 7 but so i remember a few different dinner tables some were with my babysitter which was interesting you know she was an older woman and her kids were grown and she kind of watched kids out of her home as like supplemental retirement income i guess and some were you know when my dad was home like dinner was a big thing and i remember as a teenager, there is the dinner hour and who, if the phone rang during the dinner hour, <laughs> it did not, it did not go well for me. But I also remember, you know, there were some times when like when my dad was out of town, my mom and I had a special meal we made together. When my mom was, you know, out for an evening, my dad and I had a special meal. So a lot of different versions, but definitely like the dinner hour was a thing. Like it was important in my family, but there was a lot of different, a lot of different dinner tables that were a part of my, my early childhood.
0: Hmm. Did you, when you were young and young could be, it could be eight years old or it could be 14. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do for a vocation when you grew up and and was it supported by your family?
1: So the earliest memory I have is I wanted to be a teacher or I wanted to be an artist. And for context, I was born in the seventies. So, you know, I was a young girl in the early eighties and, and I think I would, I don't have children, but I would imagine now it's probably girls answer that question probably very differently than we did 40 years ago. But yeah, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be an artist. I remember my dad saying like, well, maybe an art teacher and, and neither of those things really happened. Although creativity is a part of my life, it just looks different. And, you know, I'm a coach, so there's certainly a teaching component to that sometimes, but that's the earliest, what do you want to be when you grow up memory that I have?
0: hmm. And the other curiosity I had is I, I know that you and I both are the same Myers-Briggs personality mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. and which is INFJ and yeah. INFJs. I don't want to paint in too broad a strokes, but you as an only child, you probably got a decent amount of alone time. Was was mm-hmm. that something that was both nourishing for you and at times challenging? Like, do you yeah. do you have, yeah, what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, as an only child, a lot of people ask, like, "Oh, don't you wish you have siblings?" And I'm like, I, "You can't miss what you've never had." Like, I don't, I don't have the context of that experience, but I do definitely remember having a lot of like solitary time as a kid, and a lot of time with other adults. You know, I spent time with my parents, friends. Like, I think only children are definitely probably mature a little bit more because they are with more adults um, than they are children. But I notice now as an adult, like, being on my own is. Like a lot of people are scared to be alone. And for me, that's almost my safe space. Like I'm really, I'm good at that. So my growth actually comes from pushing myself to be vulnerable and to be in partnership differently and to reach out when I need help. Like I am much more likely to go it alone mm-hmm. and be fiercely independent than I am to be like reliant on other folks. So call it only child, call it INFJ, but yeah, both sides of that being alone coin for sure.
0: Mm. Yeah, very interesting. It, it's something I'm not an only child, I, I have a sister. And it's something that I, it's a great strength in a lot of ways. But then it becomes sometimes it's the only sword that I'm using the the go it alone and fiercely independent yeah. sword. And it can be really, for, for me, at least it can be really challenging and vulnerable to ask for help and, and yep. request support. And I know that that's an integral part of, especially the work that you do is a, in a lot of ways that leaders are helping to build something that's way bigger than themselves. So I would love to get into, before you got into coaching, that wasn't the first career choice you made, right? You were, nope, I've had a psychology. few. <laughs> yeah. So what could you just like very loosely connect the dots? How did you arrive to uh, becoming a, a leadership coach where you are yeah. today?
1: So my undergraduate degrees in psychology, so that was my first love, you know, I've always been endlessly fascinated by humans and, you know, always wanted to understand them more. And certainly the INFJ, like the helper nature is a mm-hmm. piece of that too, but you know, at 22, I was like, what do you do with this degree? So fell into corporate America, worked in corporate for 20 years. My earliest career was actually in technology. And then I moved into recruiting and talent acquisition for the bulk of that. So that was about 14 years in that space ended up that career as a program manager running a multi-million dollar executive recruiting program for ADP and was coaching. So I was building my coaching practice at the same time. So I was ramping down the corporate career. And I really look at it as kind of combining all of the pieces, you know, hindsight is a gift. And when I look back on my career, I can see the through line, Like starting with that bachelor's degree, all the way through, like there's a lot of coaching that goes on in the recruiting field. And then, you know, having my own leadership journey and having my own time, you know, with teams and in, in large and small companies. So all the pieces really come together for the work that I do now.
0: And how did you arrive on coaching at that? You were in talent acquisition for 14 years. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't just one moment, but was there, uh, does anything come to mind with regard to a realization? Like, yes, this is, this is what I actually want to be doing. And like now I'm lit up to move in this direction.
1: So my process is actually a little different and my process starts with not this. So <laughs> I had been with one company for almost 10 years. I think it was about like eight or so years at the time. And I was really strongly in that space of not this. It was a, uh, and I'd had multiple roles in the company, but the heart of it, it, was, you know, it was a commissioned role and that really yields a 24 seven lifestyle and you're always on and like that, you know, consistent pushing to so run your eight. I hit not this. I didn't know what to do though. So I did, I did what you do when you have a job. I went to job interviews and everything was like, "Hmm, same job, different walls. I went to grad school, open houses. I'm like, and I had gotten about 10 years prior, I'd gotten an MBA, but I was like, maybe I'll get another degree. Maybe, you know, I will get an MSW and, and go that direction. But one, I never, I never felt called to the clinical space and I have deep respect. I worked with, you know, amazing clinical practitioners in my life, but that never felt like my calling to me, but it was, again, it was just what I knew But in that same time period, I had started, and this was 2012, 13. So this was back when like blogging was really huge, especially in the coaching industry. So I started reading and following a lot of coaches and their blogs. And the one coach that I really most aligned with, like the blog that I could get lost on for hours, she launched a training program that year in 2013. And I applied and I was the first graduating class in 2014. So when I sat in that first class, I was like, oh, this is it. This Mm -hmm. is the thing but my journey and what I know to be true about myself is that my start is always not this. So it's like, I get really clear on what's not working and then there's some sort of like uh, period. And then I finally figure it out and and get that clarity. But I I tend to be a slow transitioner.
0: Mm. It's such a powerful insight that you like, I think about this almost from a a food lens in a lot of ways, like Mm -hmm. a lot of you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think like this, but this is the way my brain's working right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, when if we have, let's say a digestive issue, it can be really helpful to start eliminating things and say, yeah. you know, that's, that's not working for me or to try something and go mm, that, that didn't sit well. Yeah. So no, that's not the thing in our life. I don't think that's spoken about enough, like in our romantic life, when you're dating, mm-hmm. it really can help to know eh, that wasn't the right not person. This. For me, right? <laughs> not this. So, so there's something to be said about trying things instead of trying to figure out what the right thing is and then doing it. It's, why don't I just experiment a little bit, try yeah. some different stuff out and see if that's, if it works great. And if it doesn't good data, and now I move on to the next thing. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't want to get too lost on a tangent, I just wanted to underscore the importance of that and in, in away for myself too. I want to get well, right there's into a lot of
1: alignment there. I mean, I look, i view yeah. food the same way too. Like the other night, I ate more ice cream than I should have. And the next morning I was like, Ooh, not that.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to get right into your leadership work because it, I'm so I'm passionate about it. I know that you're passionate about it. I want to start with radical kindness. Mm-hmm. So what is radical kindness and what's the distinction between kind and nice?
1: Yeah, so I'll actually start there. So to me, the difference between kind and nice is kind is active and nice is passive. So the mm. example I always give is, you know, nice is the person that you see at the water cooler, you see in the kitchen and they're like, Oh, you know, Hey, Laura, how was your weekend? Blah, blah, blah. And they walk away and they kind of grumble something under their breath. Like, Oh, she's such a pain, you know, whatever. So that's, that's like the nice, right. That's the don't scratch below the surface or it's all going to fall apart, but we have a nice corporate culture. Mm. Um, kindness is really active. So kindness starts with hiring practices and having them be inclusive. Kindness starts with making sure that People all get an equal voice around the table, and people are invited to the table and the table is a place where they're comfortable and Kindness means that we don't foster a culture of burnout. Um, you know we do our best to distribute work equitably and we we lead with a human first way and I think that's really that's probably the the simplest way that I could put it to me it's it's human first leadership is really like radical kindness and having a company or a team that works in that way. we've got to recognize that. Everybody's a person, you know, I'm not a cog, the employees aren't a cog. And if we can start with that humanity, the work is always going to improve.
0: Yeah. Is that, so when someone comes across your work, is that something that like your, do your clients know, like, this is what Laura does and this is mm-hmm. why I'm working with her. And I, cause I imagine a lot of leaders, they hear that and they go, that sounds great like I I get that but like I don't think that's going to that's too much of an undertaking for my company so there's I guess my question right now is twofold one is if if a leader is coming to work with you where are they typically at like what where are they maybe stuck or what what are they looking to improve mm-hmm. and then what are some diagnostics sounds a little clinical but like what are what are some things that you look for to work on with them in order to like massage into the culture, because it can be very nuanced and challenging in some ways it's very simple, but mm-hmm. in some ways it can simple be really challenging. Easy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think a couple things. So typically there's some sort of transition point. So maybe it's a leader going from manager to director. So, you know, you've got a team, of individual contributors. And now you're moving to that next stage and you're going to be a leader of leaders, or, you know, it is the owner of a smaller company or a smaller business. And I love that small business space. Honestly, I've worked in huge companies and I worked in small companies in my career. And at the end of the day, I'm a small business person. I thrive on change and on impact. And and I think that's really the space where, where I get to see it most. So that really excites me. And a lot of times that pivot with a business owner is I'm moving from business to company. So Mm it's me or maybe me and a partner and started a business, but suddenly we have these employees and things aren't quite working anymore because we're still operating in the same way that we were. And, you know, it's not sustainable or, you know, maybe I want to spend less time in my business and actually let these people that I've hired run my company, but there's always some sort of pivot point. And then the kindness piece just comes in for me as it's like a filter. You know, a lot of times people will say to me, well, you know, how do you convince people that they need to bring kindness into the business world? I'm like, I don't <laughs> like we either align or we don't. It's really cool. There's a lot of great coaches out there and I am hundred percent okay with me being the, not this for someone else mm-hmm. because alignment is important to me. And I, you know, that's one of the reasons I lead with my values. Like I want to work with values aligned people and organizations and not to say that there's not room to make change in the world, but I don't think it's my job to convince anyone of anything. I think it's my job Mm -hmm. to support people who, you know, are already sort of in this realm of, of having this belief system and actually just amplify it and do it better.
0: Mm -hmm. So this piece about values, I think is extremely important. Mm -hmm. Kindness seems to be definitely one, one of your values, but do you have other core values that you, that you always come home to in for you and for your business?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting for a long time. I probably had like four or five. And then a couple of years ago I did Brene Brown's dare to lead program. Mm. So I did the two day and she pushes you to get to two. So I got to two and it's kindness and integrity and everything else really rolled up under that. And I don't do either perfectly. There are some times when I lose my cool and I show up in a way that I'm not proud of, which is both unkind and out of integrity, but I'm a human being. And then getting back into integrity means, you know, apologizing and owning it and forgiving myself too. So I never try to pretend that I'm perfect or do anything perfectly. I actually, I'd prefer that you see me imperfectly and love me anyway, because that's what I want for everybody that I work with. Like, let's see yourself for all of your imperfections and love yourself anyway. But yeah, kindness or integrity are the two that I, I try to come home to.
0: Mm. And integrity. Do you, I know I've heard Brene say this many times that the the root of Uh, of integrity is integrare, I think, which is whole. Mm -hmm. Do you view integrity as is is it connected to wholeness in in some way? Like, what does integrity mean to you?
1: Yeah, to me, it's words and actions aligning. So I want to walk my talk, you know, I want to Mm -hmm. be what you see is what you get, you know, I want you to know that if I commit to something that I'm going to show up for it, or I'm going to, you know, like, life happens, right? Like, so part of, Part of integrity with myself is not holding myself to perfectionistic standards and not running myself ragged and not, you know, creating a business that burns me out, just like corporate America burns me out. So sometimes that does mean, you know, giving myself the same grace I gave other people. You know, I had two just like quickie hello networking calls this morning and both people emailed me and said like, Hey, running late or this came up, can we reschedule? And of course, like I was thrilled for that. Honestly, I'm like, Oh, I get to have, you know, a little bit of extra time. And now I can send out these client notes and do this stuff and i also noticed that i hold myself to a different standard so there's often times when i won't allow myself to do something like that so part of practicing my integrity is if i really can't show up for something in a good way then i need to move it and i just did that like i was supposed to have a lunch meeting with someone on monday and i looked at my schedule and i'm like i'm going to get off a call run to lunch run through lunch and run back I'm like that's not that's not how that's not integrity. So I reached out and I said, look, I've got a lot of things going on. I want to meet and make sure that we're together when I can be there and like have my brain be where my feet are, as a good friend of mine says. And so we're going to meet in June instead. Um, Uh So that's a way of practicing integrity too.
0: Mm, I love that. So when it comes to your clients, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of background for me. I first worked with a life coach in 2019 and one of the first exercises I did with him, because I, I felt completely lost and directionless. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to infuse more of myself into my work, more purpose, more meaning. Mm-hmm. And one of the first, if not the very first exercise that he gave me was to come up with five core values for myself. Mm-hmm. And even now, if I look at that list of all the different values I I'm tempted to choose like 30 of them. <laughs> they all <are. laughs>
1: I know, it's so easy.
0: <laughs> and I know, and I know that you have you, like you said, Brene forces you to get down to two and, and dare to lead. I didn't do the actual course, but I I did that in in her book. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if your clients have a tough time distilling down what's important to them, what's really the most important to them, mm-hmm. and how you Help them get to the bottom of like, these are, I kind of have an idea of what you're going to say, but mm. what are the, like, how do you help them get down to two instead of so I actually
1: don't, I don't ask them to get down to two, but I do, I ask for three to five and values. Uh, so for my clients, my clients, I'll get a welcome packet that has some information, but like a lot of questions. So a lot of that stuff is included in my welcome packet, So I'm getting that before we ever have our first like official session. So values exercise is a part of that. You know, the Myers-Briggs, you know, type exam is a part of that. So like, I want to go in with a lot of knowledge. So I ask them to get down to three to five and really most folks can do that. You know, most folks I think probably have some idea of what their values are. I give them the tool, like, I actually, you know link them to the dare to lead list of values so that they can go through and use that as a tool but yeah, I don't ask them for two. I think that it took me so many years to get to two. And like I circled around them for so long and I didn't get to two from reading the book. It was only because it was actually an exercise in the Dare to Lead course. And I was like, all right, we're doing this. I'm going to get it down to two. So yeah, I asked them to get to three to five and that gives us a strong enough foundation to work with.
0: Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I, I'd be curious to see if this plays into your work at all. One of the things that's really immensely helped me open up to what feels true to me, mm-hmm. is a, a sense of embodiment. Like, if I picture what it's like to be in integrity, what does that feel like in inside of me? Or like, does that word have does that word hearing integrity? Does it spark something inside of me? That maybe the word trust or patience or confidence or gratitude or insert all the wonderful values that you mm-hmm. could have service? Is that something that you ever do with yourself or or with clients?
1: Yeah, I love to work with the body. I have personally have been working with a somatic practitioner for probably three or so years now, mm. and it's been game changing work. You know, I, I like to say, I'm like, I spent 40 years living from the neck up and there's like five feet below me that I just disregarded. <laughs> and it's such a powerful tool. And I know my body knows what's up, right? Like my body knows the people that I'm comfortable with, the places that I feel good, discerning between intuition and anxiety. You know, that's Mm. a big one. Like it's a very, to me, that's like master's level work. That's a really tough distinction sometimes, but, but yeah, part of it is just almost that, like that muscle test for lack of a better word of like what zings, right. Is it this word or is it that word? And, you know, check in with yourself. What do you notice in this moment? I just had a client session earlier this morning and we hit a point and I said, huh? So I'm feeling like your energy's like downshifted a little bit. It feels more grounded. You know, check in with me on that. What are you noticing? And you know, invited them to to do the same process and see like, oh yeah, how am I feeling right now?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'd love to get into. There are, like, kindness in the business world itself is already for a lot of people, that is a wild concept. Like yeah. it's it's not possible to even fathom that that would be a way that you can make more money, mm-hmm. have a thriving company, et cetera, et cetera. Have all the wonderful things, people flourishing. Mm-hmm. I would love to know if there's anything else in in your view about leadership that you think is kind of a hidden secret or if it's stuff that isn't common to culture, but you believe deeply to be true.
1: Yeah. So for me, it's our own personal work. You know, I quote often. So Warren Buffett always says, if you take care of your people, they'll take care of your customers and your business will take care of itself. And I believe that's true, but I believe there's a step before that. How can I take care of my people? If I'm, you know, if my cup is empty, like if I'm starving, I can't feed my people. So my work really comes in at that space. I work with leaders who believe in that, who want to take care of their people. And they're probably overgiving, you know, they're probably doing too much. They're probably, you know, not really as self-aware as they could be. So like our work always starts with the individual and the analogy I used all the time is a dance, you know, every relationship we're in, like we have some dance steps. So, you know, Mike, you and I have our dance steps now. Well, if I change and I show up differently, you have to change your dance steps. Like it's just inevitable. And sometimes that means that I'm going to step on your toes a little and you're going to step on mine, but then we get to figure it out. Maybe we get to create something even more beautiful, but those are the ripple effects. So, you know, when I'm working with a leader, I'm working with that person and I'm working with their whole humanity and, you know, like work and life and everything all together, because when you shift yourself internally, every external relationship that you have changes, it has to, there's no way around it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And what are, what are some ways that whether it's with you or clients that you make sure that your cup is full? Do you, do you mm-hmm. have certain practices to make sure that you're, cause I, I'm the same way, right? Like I can go from being an incredible, well, I don't want to call myself an incredible coach, but please do really please a,
1: call yourself an incredible coach,
0: incredible coach, a, yeah. a strong, a strong space holder, like someone mm-hmm. who can really hold the, the ground for someone to show up as they are. And if my cup's not full, mm-hmm. it, I'm, in, I can be impatient, grumpy, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: snappy. Yeah. So like, what, are, right, what MJ, are some? Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it feels like it's pretty crazy how drastically you can shift. And yeah. so I'd be happy if you're curious, I'd be happy to share some of, some of the things that fill my cup up, but I would love to know for you and for clients, how do you, how do you look at ways to fill up the cup?
1: Yeah. So for me personally, just on a really tactical level, like I need space between things. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't do well with the back-to-back scheduling and, and I've gotten really good at like it happens sometimes, but it's very rare. So I really need space between that. And, you know, you know, this, you never know what a client is going to bring. Right. So sometimes you show up and it's like, oh, this person's going to, you know, it's usually like pretty simple, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden there's something really heavy that's coming that you, so we never know. And so for me, like, I need to be able to have that spaciousness between things so that I can have a little recovery time. Like I had a day, I don't know, it was earlier this week, but it was just like, everybody had just this heaviness and it was a lot back to back. And I was really grateful that I had that space and And I had a friend that made me take a walk outside where I wouldn't have, because for me, I go into like that overdrive task oriented Mm. mode. And I'm like, I got to take the trash out. I got to feed the cats. I got to do this. Mm. And, And a friend of mine was just like, walked outside with me for 10 minutes. I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything I needed to do. So thank you for that. So giving myself those breaks, like recognizing when I need that. So that's like a really tactical day to day, bigger level, you know, connection. I'm lucky to have an amazing, small, intentionally small inner circle. So connection, those spaces, you know, asking for help, which is the edge, but you know, travel fills my cup. So that's been really challenging the last three years. And I'm getting back into that space, starting in a few weeks, I'm going to travel a lot this summer. So I can't wait Mm -hmm. for that, you know, doing new things. I really like the balance of having adventure with quiet time, you know, going back to being an only child, like. I was so happy last night to just have a few hours to lay on the sofa and like watch bad TV. And that was the only thing that I had to do because yeah. that was exactly what I needed. And I was really tired and then I felt better. So I need that quiet time, but I also need, you know, connection and adventure. And then just really tactically again, in the schedule, making sure that I don't fall back into those bad habits of overcommitting committing and overbooking. And when I start to feel like I'm squeezing everything in, that's when I know it's a problem.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's, it's really, at least in my experience, it can be really easy to fall into the trap of a a herd mentality, or like, Mm -hmm. this is the way that most people operate. And so Mm -hmm. something's wrong with me, if I can't operate at that same way, like to be in meetings back to back all day, or to be able to sit down and crank out eight hours of work. My my background is in accounting, which I still Mm -hmm. do part time. Mm -hmm. And accounting and law in particular are very much like, I don't want to, this is a little bit reductive and it's not completely true, but a lot of your worth as an employee Mm -hmm. is based on the amount of time that you bill. Yeah, it's it's very
1: productivity focused.
0: Productivity focused. And it's it's quite literally like the more time that you're sitting down working on a client, the more value, air quotes, Mm -hmm. valuable that you are as an employee. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my conditioning as a professional has been around more, is better. Yeah, that's going to get me a better raise. It's going to get me better praise from my boss. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) until I worked with a coach and and therapists, I wasn't really thinking about how does how does Michael operate best? Mm -hmm. I was trying to fit myself into a a box of, you know, like, well, uh, uh, working in groups is better collaboration. and, And like, I think those are great things. But it's more It's more nuanced than that, right? Sometimes I work my best alone and other times I need to be with people. And it's to be able to uh, weave all these seemingly different, disparate polarities together. To me, that seems to be one of the best things that we can do in a leader. Yeah. And especially with the folks that you're working with, it's really important to realize all the different styles of the people that work with you and for you too, right? Like we don't all have the same style. Right. <laughs> We're right. all so unique in the ways that we operate. I don't think I've ever been asked about what, you know, what my learning style is as an employee mm. or how I best operate or mm. anything of that nature. So I'd be curious to hear if that's anything that you work on with with your clients at all or with the organizations and companies that you do work with as well.
1: Yeah. And there are companies that do that. You know, there are companies that, you know, the employees basically write their owner's manual and they give it to their leadership. It's like, you know, the care and feeding of Laura. Like, how do you manage me best? And mm. I encourage my leaders to talk to their team about, you know, how do you work? What is best for you in a leadership? Because some people do need more guidance and support. I always preferred autonomy. I'm like just. me what i need to do tell me when it's due and like trust me that i'll get it done and let me just do it my own way but that's me right i have a cousin who's a paralegal and she does really well with specifics and really understanding like with an increased amount of clarity so yeah i encourage all of my clients to just check in with their employees and to make sure you know what is it that i can do for you how can i best lead you and also to shape that, you know, what is it that you need from them? Be very clear with your expectations, you know, kind is clear um, mm. and we have to be direct about what we're asking for. And we can do that in a really kind way. Like asking people to do something is not unkind. It's it's our jobs. Like we need to get things done, um, but we get to do it in a way that's personal. Like you were saying, you know, I don't believe in like blanket styles of leadership because every person is different. So if you have a team of half a dozen people, each one of them is going to need something a little bit different from you. They're going to need some autonomy and they're going to need some group time, but they're going to need, you know, some might need more autonomy and some might need more group time, but we just get to ask the questions instead mm-hmm. of making assumptions or instead of just thinking my way is the right way. And that's to yeah. me, that's really just old school leadership. That is not companies that have too many people like that are not doing well.
0: Yes. That was a really interesting, there was a bit in there about like asking for things is actually really kind. And what, what came up for me is that one of a very shadowy, nice thing that we can do is to take on someone else's workload and say like, I I got this, right? Like to to almost try and rescue all the people around us and say, you know, if they can't handle it, then I'm going to do it. And then usually, you know, that's, a, that's one of my go-tos actually. That leads into some sort of resentment or maybe a <laughs> yeah. gossiping about the other person not doing a good job. Are there, other, are there any other shadowy, nice things that come to mind as like, we think we're doing the right thing, but we're really hampering or harming the, the people around us, the company, etc.?
1: Yeah. So that is a huge one, you know, doing all the work. And I see that a lot with new leaders, just it's a comfort zone thing in the most Mm -hmm. part, like you're used to doing the work and now you're a leader and you're not supposed to do the work anymore. And you're like, wait a minute, what I'm not supposed to, I'm good at the work. Why can't I do the work? So that's one, but I think even in more experienced leaders, it's not pointing out people's mistakes and correcting them for them. So taking away that opportunity to learn. So, you know, you, you turn something into me And instead of me sitting down and saying like, Hey, let me just go over the few things that I am going to correct in this. I just correct it because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Mm. Well, but then you never get the opportunity to learn and to grow. And I'm my nice gesture is actually a disservice to you because my job as your leader is to help you grow. And if I'm just correcting your mistakes and never giving you the chance to learn, that's a disservice to you. So I see that a lot too. Mm. And avoiding hard conversations. Like that's the biggest one nobody, I was working with a new manager a few months ago and he's like, and it was like right before he was going to get promoted. And he's like, I just, I don't like to have hard conversations. I was like, cool. So you're a human, like (laughs) nobody that I know gets out of bed. is like, I hope I can have all the hard conversations today. I said, but I I'm really good at them. So we'll navigate them together and it's going to be fine. Like we'll work on that when you need to have them, but don't let that be the thing that stops you from doing this job. That is everything else that you want to
0: do. That's exactly where I wanted to go next, Laura. I wanted to go into hard conversations. (laughs) To me, that's Mm -hmm. such an important part of being a good leader. Yeah. Are there like what examples come up for you, whether it's been for you personally or Mm -hmm. in they could be case studies, anything at all. Like, What are some ways that challenging conversations have come up, Mm -hmm. ways that people dodge it? And then what are some ways we can effectively have them more often?
1: Yeah, so I think people either ignore them or they wait to the point where like they're past boiling over. So then it becomes an argument, right? Then it's like, you know, that's when people fly off the handle. So it's like we avoid them and some people can avoid for a real long time, but it's always going to come out some way. So like the, those are the two common things I see. It's like you're either just avoiding it, period, or you're avoiding it for so long and then it builds and then you can't avoid it anymore and then you just like totally lose your cool on somebody and then you're out of integrity and you don't feel good about how you show up and it's a whole thing. So those are the two most common things I see. And I think the way to do it, you know, you had talked about embodiment, you know, part Mm -hmm. of it is recognizing, oh, am I feeling resentful of that person? Oh, am I, for me, I know one of the signs is if I start keeping score, there's a conversation that I need to have. So that's a (laughs) sign for me. Um, But it's just pushing yourself to break that dynamic. And it's, you're going to hit discomfort either way. You're either going to be uncomfortable because you're keeping score and you're resentful and you're avoiding a conversation, or you're going to be uncomfortable because you're doing the hard thing and having a hard conversation. Um, I think it's Glenn Doyle. that says, choose your hard, you know, it's a hard choice either way. And, and there are really kind ways to have hard conversations. And some of it just starts with like, let's name it. Let's name the fact that, Hey, I need to have a little bit of a difficult conversation with you. And, you know, I want to start with the human level. I led a meeting a few months ago. um, And just two people from the same company and me, and we were coming together to kind of like get a lot of clarity on someone's changing role, but also there had been some resentment between the two of them. And and I just started the meeting and I work with them both individually. So I had information that they didn't have about each other and didn't ask for anyone to share. But I just started the meeting by saying, we are three human beings in this room. We're all coming into this room, carrying a lot. And I would just like to ask us to keep that in mind and to give ourselves and to give each other some grace. And we're going to get through the agenda and we're going to do everything that we need to do in the next two hours. And the invitation here is to do so with some grace for ourselves and for each other. Because we're all here with a lot more than just this agenda of the next two hours.
0: Mm.
1: And it was almost like like shoulders dropped and it just set the tone for, okay. And then something happened and there is a technical issue and nobody flew off the handle and it was like, you know, it just flowed differently by naming that, you know, I think so much of us try to process things unconsciously and then everyone around us is just like, what's going on. And, and it feels off. And there's like an energetic disconnect, but we're not naming it. So part of it is just let's disclose of, Hey, I'm really struggling with the fact that I've been asking you that for this for six weeks and you still don't have it to me. Help me understand, help me understand what's going on with you so that we can change this dynamic. And it's huh. hard. It is so hard. We don't communicate that way.
0: Yeah. Help me understand is, is such a it's gentle. Favorite. Oh, my God. That, that yeah. seems like such a game changer. If you could mm-hmm. just, because it, it, in a way, it, it just brings in empathy automatically. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm here with you. I want to yeah. really get what's happening. Mm-hmm. And one of, one of the examples, I just had a personal example around a challenging conversation that came up. Yesterday I was mm-hmm. working with one of my clients mm-hmm. and he just named essentially, I don't know, you know, we've been working together for a while. I don't know if I want to continue working with you anymore. Mm-hmm. And he just put that on the table. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain sensation I experienced in my body, but because yeah. there's a part of me that just, you know, is feeling rejected or it uh, hurt in some way. Mm-hmm. And but we ended up having a, a really powerful conversation around that and mm-hmm. kind of realigning. Why is this person here with me? Or why, mm-hmm. what, is, what is this person trying to get out of working with me? What's their North Star? Mm-hmm. And just naming that really challenging thing, which was really hard for, for him as well. I, I could bet. see that that was, not, that was something that had been lingering for mm-hmm. a while. And we ended up having a really productive conversation around it. And you named that in, in your example, there just is like a collective sigh and drop of the shoulders almost where everyone goes, Oh God, there's like, we cleared that's out of the way now. Yeah. And there's really, it's such a powerful way to like, it's the thing that we're hiding from is actually the, the answer all along. If we are able to just bring it to the table. Which is mm-hmm. not to say it's easy, Mm-mm. and I wanted to so help me understand. It's it's not a question, but it's it's a nice prompt that you can use. And I would love to hear other questions that you think are really helpful ways of, of building empathy between folks, or that you use in, as coaching questions.
1: Yeah, so you know, the help me understand is great because I just think you know if I if I need to understand something from you, I can say, Mike, why didn't you get me this report? Or I can say. <laughs> Hey, Mike, help me understand what's going on. We agreed last week that you'd have this done today. What's up? It's the same thing, (laughs) but which feels better, right? Like which feels better to be on the receiving of. So then my work is the leader is I need to manage myself so that I can show up in the space to say, Hey, Mike, help me understand. We agreed to this and it's not here. Like what's up instead of why the hell isn't this report on my desk by close of business? Like you said, it would be. So that's my self-management work to be able to show up that way. I think some other things that help, you know, I do believe in, in agreements. I believe in co-creating, asking more questions than being instructive. I think that so many leaders think that they're supposed to have all the answers, you know, air quotes, supposed to, and actually the best leaders know which questions to ask of people and where to go for answers. And they're not afraid to say when they don't know something, you know, I would always rather have someone say to me, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Let me check and get back to you. You know, then make something up or give me incorrect information or have to come back and correct it. Like, I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to have the answers and to have the right answers all the time. And we can actually just ask better questions and then listen more. You know, that's part of the balance too. If you're talking more than you're listening, yeah, that's a dynamic to start to shift a little bit. So, you know, ask the question and then zip it. Like when I first started coaching, I literally forced myself to count to six in my head so that I wasn't feeling the uncomfortable <laughs> silence. And so that's a tool that I can give people, like ask the question and then zip it and wait for the person to give you an answer. Because a lot of leaders are overworking and they're doing more work, you know, from the interview to the management process to like, if you're putting in more than your people are, you're always going to build resentment. You're going to hit burnout. You're going to create that culture where, you know, people are cranky at each other because, you know, so-and-so is not doing anything and your manager is going to be spinning around and it's just, it doesn't work for anyone. So really starting to notice where do I need to step back and, you know, push myself to do the uncomfortable thing, which is less in the weeds and, and more in the strategy. And how do I start to put that into place?
0: Mm. And with regard to questions, are there any personal favorites, go-tos that you use?
1: Mm, let's see. I mean, help me understand is definitely the biggest, I think more so than questions. It's just that strategy that we talked about of like, let's name it, you know, let's name okay. what's going on. So Hey, I noticed that you've been coming in, you know, late the past couple of days. Is everything okay? Is there anything that I can do for you? What is it that you need from me? You know, there's aspects of servant leadership that I think are really valuable, but really just noticing and starting, starting everything on that human note, instead of, instead of giving into the story and making up the like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just get here? We don't actually know. So noticing when your brain is coming up with a story that you have no, factual evidence of and switching that into curiosity, which like, and the middle step of that is not a light switch. The middle step of that is how am I supporting myself? What does support look like for me as a leader so that I can show up in that way? So I'm not leading with assumptions. I'm not leading with accusations. I'm leading with curiosity and compassion because these are humans on my team. And sometimes the most compassionate thing to do is to acknowledge it's not a fit, right? Like the brave conversation that your client had with you led to a great outcome. And sometimes that happens too, but sometimes the bravest kindest thing to do is to just acknowledge that this is not working for either of us. And we need to put that out there and we need to change this. Um, and that might mean that you don't work here anymore. And that might mean that maybe there's a different department and we could move you around and, you know let's make some agreements for the next 90 days. And you can see if you can find something internally, but here's my very clear expectations. And if these aren't met, then I'm not going to be able to support you in the same way. Those are really hard conversations to have, but they have powerful outcomes. Mm -hmm.
0: Tell me about the power of the word and I've Mm. I've heard you speak to the word and, and Mm -hmm. I, and I love it. And I'd love to hear you expound on that.
1: Yeah. So, gosh, this goes back to my coach training. And I wish I could remember who it was, but we had like a guest lecturer come in and she talked about that, you know, switching out of the or mentality into the and. And I think that we live in a very black and white binary society where it's, you know, it's right or it's wrong. It's yes or it's no. It's, you know, we're really encouraged to be in one of these two extremes. Democrat or Republican. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And like there's so much beauty that lies in the space in between. So, can I today, have woken up and been tired and excited and happy and anxious and all the things like, yes, all of these things get to coexist. And, and my life is so much richer for that. So instead of looking at, you know, well, this person has to get here on time, or I'm going to fire them. The end would be, I need this person to be able to commit to a regular schedule. How can I work with them so that we arrive at something mutually beneficial? So just noticing any times, if you're like shoving yourself into, you know, one of these two very binary boxes, what's the space in between? Like, what is the and, and how do you find it? Because we're never just one thing. Like I'm not one emotion sitting right here, right now, talking to you. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff going on and being able to see that and acknowledge it is in my opinion, like a much healthier way to exist on the planet. You know, I can tell you that. You really messed up that invoice last week, and it's going to cost a cost us a lot of money. And you're still incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. We just need to make sure that we figure out a way that that doesn't happen again. That's the and right. the yeah. The other option is, well, wow, you made this huge mistake, and we're going to have to, you know, do a performance write up and yada yada yada, and then it just completely negates the entire the entirety of someone else's career.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have? It seems like your your work it it pulls from a lot of different threads or teachers. Do any does anyone come to mind in terms of mentors who have been most influential on your work, or maybe it's courses that you've attended that you're like, yes, that's a thing for me, or books read like this. What what comes to mind as the strongest influences on your work?
1: Yeah. So. Probably my number one favorite leadership coaching book is Reboot by Jerry Colonna. Amazing. You know, great podcast as well, but he, that book was really the thing that bridged humanity and business for me. Our styles very much align. I pulled from Buddhist philosophy. I'm actually going to go see Pema Chodron at Omega in a couple of weeks, which is just a tremendous bucket list item for me. And I'm unbelievably thrilled about it. You know, other coaches that I know, And admire. I pull a lot from the work now that I do with my somatic practitioner, and it's very different. You know, most of my work isn't hands-on, but just that ability to access the body and to recognize that there's so much wisdom in the body. Years ago, I read The Body Keeps the Score by Mm -hmm. Bessel van der Kolk, Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. Those were two influential books. I really enjoy Oh my gosh. Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. Yes. I just had to look her book is on my shelf. Brene Brown's work, certainly we've touched upon. That was probably like the earliest influence to me. There's a few others, but those are the big ones. Yeah. Mm. Reboot, Brene Brown, sprinkling some Buddhist philosophy and somatic work. And that's pretty much where I come from.
0: Mm. From, from Reboot, I haven't read the book but I'm familiar with, with Jerry Colonna. Mm-hmm. Was there... What stands out most as one of the key learnings? I I know that he was pretty sure he was at like an executive level in in New York City. Yeah, he was
1: a venture capitalist for a long time, owned venture capital firms and did lots of large scale investing and, you know, had his own breakdown breakthrough period Mm -hmm. and has been coaching for a number of years now. But I think one of the biggest he he brings in more humanity than I, to prior to reading his book than I had ever seen exhibited in the executive coaching space. You know, a lot of stuff comes down to metrics and deliverables and, and I get it. You've got to see value. It's an investment for an organization. I, I want my clients to see value from it. And I have a hard time quantifying when we help a leader to show up for themselves the business bottom line improves, like it, it's kind of hard to sell that up front. Right. So mm-hmm. I think his book really, and not that it gave me metrics, but it, it just validated the work that I was already doing. And I was reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, it's not just me. This is really great. So one of the things, you know, like he's not scared to talk about what was your family of origin like, and yeah. he works with mostly, um, entrepreneurs, uh, I would say I'm probably like 50, 50 with like leaders in companies versus owners of companies. But I think it's true. I think most entrepreneurs create what they needed as Mm -hmm. a kid, right? So what did you need as a kid and look at the company you've created and I guarantee you, you're going to find parallels. So how do we start to shift again, who you are as a, as a person, how do we shift your way of being as the one at the helm of this company so that your needs are met and then the company gets to run instead of the company exists to meet these subconscious needs. Mm. Yeah.
0: One of the things that's coming up from, for me, as you describe that, especially around family of origin, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Coaches Rising. It's a, a podcast and an organization, and, and they do some coaches trainings. And I'm in a course right now called The Power of Embodied Transformation. Ooh! And it's really focused on, it's, it seems like it's similar work that you're doing with your uh, somatic practitioner. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really enlightening for me in a lot of ways was this notion that so like right now it's you and I are in a conversation and it can be really easy to put the blinders on and just think of only right now, like I'm talking to Laura in whatever age she is in this exact moment. And really what we're speaking to, which I came to realize in this course is Someone who not only has a is bringing a full lifetime of experience and you're you identify as a woman mm-hmm. and you're white and you grew up in the US and so we're shaped by so many things mm-hmm. that bring like we're all we're a culmination of so much stuff in this moment we're not just one thing so one of the you know like there there's actually a diagram that I got from the course that's like we're shaped by our family, then we're shaped by the community we grew up in, then what our religion, then on a bigger scale, there's institutions, like did we go to church, Uh, there's governments, like our government in the US is different than say, Mm -hmm. in Finland versus Australia, etc. And there are just shaped by so many different things. And to really be able to plug into the humanity of like all of that and to have the awareness that, yeah, we're not We can't just check into work as as productivity robot, (laughs) as COGS, right? As people who are just contributing to the bottom line, like we're all showing up with so much and then not, not even to bring in intergenerational, right? Like what our parents have gone through. And a lot of times we're, we're carrying what our parents went through and their parents and our whole ancestry. So it's a really, I think it can be profoundly, uh, profoundly game-changing to, understand all the different things that we like the complexity of our humanity it's we we can't we like to like you said be a binary but there's there's so much more that goes into us
1: so much richer than that i mean i so i think naming it is one of the things that is like a big part of the work that i do and either you know it's my job as a coach is to name it you know to call my clients in you know in is the loving way out is the kind of more aggressive way but to call them in and you know i will have conversations with clients like we exist in the system of, so we exist in the system of patriarchy. We exist in the system of white supremacy. Like these are factors, like these are, and they're the water that we swim in and we don't always even recognize the influence it has. So I love that viewpoint. And I love incorporating all of that, like family of origin, you know, what are the social systems and structures that you grew up with? What are the social systems and structures that we're existing in now that we just accept and and almost you know, they're unconscious because they just are, but they're actually having an impact right now. So like, let's name it, you know, can I, I have a client who is a scientist and things I can't even pronounce. She's like wildly intelligent. And she not surprisingly is like one of very few women in the organizations that she works with. And she's consistently battling that upstream. And, and there's a cost to that, you know, her work experience is different than the 55 year old white man that she reports to like, it just is. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that in if for no other reason than to normalize what she's feeling. Like I would be doing a disservice. If I was just trying to like self care her out of this level of exhaustion, Mm -hmm. like there's only so much we can do, but like, we have to take care of ourselves to be able to impact the system. Yet the system is impacting how we can take care of ourselves.
0: Wow. Yeah. There's, there's so much in there. I'm wondering, with a client, are there certain clients that you or people that show up to work with you that you have to turn away because they're, they're bringing something that's, that might feel like it's too much, like that mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able, like I'm imagining for me, if say, I don't know, a 45 year old black woman came to mm-hmm. work with me, it would be hard, you know, if I'm being really honest, it would be really yeah. hard for me to identify. I have the privilege of being uh, straight white male. Mm-hmm. And it would be, that might be someone that I'd say there's plenty of other great coaches out there. Yeah. But so maybe we're me, not, yeah.
1: yeah, And that's integrity, right? Like exactly what you just described. Um, I think it was last year. So I had a company that I worked with, I'd worked with one of their leaders and they came to me. They're like, we have this other person, you know, we want you to work with her really small company. That's kind of my jam. Um, and she's the only woman of color. And I said, I appreciate you coming to me and I'm happy to meet with her. And I think she'd probably be better served by a coach. Who's also a woman of color. Um, I said, I will never understand that lived experience. I, if I put myself in her shoes, would probably want someone who does. So like, let's let her make the decision. Let's let her have agency in this choice. Again, I'm happy, but I ended up referring her and they did end up working with another coach. who was a woman of color. And that felt like the right move to me. Mm -hmm. I'm, and, and I have clients. It's so funny. I have a client that I've worked with her on and off for years and, I still, to this day, um, I love her and we do great work together. And I'm still surprised she hired me. She's, she's Christian and I tend more, to, I was raised Catholic, but I tend more towards the spiritual. Don't like align with any sort of prescribed, but she's very Christian and she's also a black woman. And I'm like, but it's been great. And it's been years. So that's what I mean by agency. Like I don't ever want to meet with somebody who says, I'm only going to meet with you. And that's it. Like I always encourage everybody I talk Mm -hmm. with, like have, I'll give you other folks to talk to, like let me connect you with somebody else to talk to because you will get the most value from the person with whom you feel the most connection. And if that's me, great. And if that's someone else, great, because I want you to get the most out of this time and financial investment that you're making in yourself. But I think it's my job to also, look out for that a little bit and say, you know, maybe, maybe it isn't me and that's okay.
0: Mm. It's, it's bringing that humanity into sales as well. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a bit about uh, abundance in there too. Just Mm -hmm. trusting that this work is more important than this person working with me. It's, it's about them finding the right person to work with. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm finding myself curious to check back in around how Uh, Buddhist philosophy Mm. uh, informs maybe, uh, if not necessarily directly something about your work, just the way that you think about your work or the way you think about yourself or humanity and uh, the place for spirituality in the business world. Mm.
1: Yeah. So I think the way it shows up for me is, you know, most, so I, and most of my clients, because. Look, we attract what we know, right. We teach what we need to learn. So most of us are pretty busy in our heads all the time. We're eight steps down the road. You know, it's not 12, 13 PM when I'm sitting with you right now, I'm already like at dinner with friends or what time am I leaving for the beach tomorrow? You know, all that kind of stuff. So like, I think one of the big things from Buddhist philosophy is just like, just that notice and come back. And that like, we have our experience and then we judge our experience. And the biggest amount of stress comes from that judgment of the experience. If we just let ourselves experience it, like I said to a friend the other day, I was like, and like they were going through something tough and trying to fight out of it. Like, I don't like this feeling. I don't like this difficult feeling. I'm like, cool, you're human. And this is just how today is gonna feel. And maybe it's just how this hour is gonna feel. Okay. So just like notice and come back, notice and come back, like really bringing in that presence and that groundedness and that ability to be aware. So I think, and, and then sometimes the concept of like holding it loosely, you know, you're saying earlier with clients, like we can get so attached. I was thinking the, the conversation your client had with you, like I could see myself getting very attached to that. Like, no, this means something about me and my work sure. and my impact. And I'm so attached to holding on to this, where can I just hold it loosely and remember that my only job is to be present with this person and to support them to their best outcome. And if that best outcome is me, great. And if that best outcome, isn't me great. So those are really the two main things is just continuing to come back to presence, continuing to come back to the moment and trying to hold things a little bit more loosely before I even got into this work behind, behind my right ear. You can't see it, but I have the words, let go tattooed on my body because like, that's always been my life's work. It's what, it's what I need to consistently remember to do Um, and let go sometimes means Really hard choices and choices that have been wrestled with for years and years. But that inner knowing, when you always come back to it, it tells you what you need to know.
0: Mm. Have there been really challenging decisions that you've made from that place of inner knowing in your life? And, and how, like, what, where do you feel it the most inside of you when you have that inner knowing? Mm especially when you've let go and like the word surrender was yes. coming up for me. Yeah. I love
1: the word surrender. So what I actually learned a couple of months ago, one of the things that came out of the somatic work that I've been doing is that I connect to others through my heart center and I connect to myself through my core. Mm. Um, so I'll even notice when I'm with a client, like oftentimes if there's something, you know, heavy, that's coming up, you know, my hand just instinctively goes to my heart and that's, that's my connection out. My connection in is my core. So there was a day a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't, I couldn't name it, but I had, I, you know, I woke up and I was really exhausted and and like, I could feel it. I was just not at my full capacity. It was really drained, but you know, the, the things started right. The day started, I did the things I turned it on, right. That's what we do. I do the things I do the work and was going from thing to thing. and, And I was lucky that evening I had an acupuncture appointment and I was like, I can't articulate it. It's like, I don't feel ungrounded. I do feel grounded. I just, I don't know what it is. And then afterwards I was like, I know what it is. I lost my connection to my center and I couldn't even tell you what I needed. Like I had lost so much connection that like, I couldn't tell you if I was hungry or not. I couldn't tell you if I was thirsty or not. I couldn't, I just couldn't. And then after like the result was honestly, I was wiped out like beyond wiped out. And then I got to honor that. And I just, I came home, I made some food because I had gotten reconnected again. I was like, Oh, I actually am hungry. Okay. This is a component of it, right? Like all the things in the room, the systems, the experiences, like all the things are here right now. Hungry is a piece of this. So I made some food and I started to feel better. And my brain started to do its thing. It was like, Oh, now you could run that errand that you skipped on the way home now. You-. And I was like, stop it. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> stop it.
1: You will not be serving yourself tomorrow. If you do that today, like honor what you need. Like give yourself this night off, give yourself this downtime. The errand can wait. It's totally okay. But like having those conversations with myself, because the minute I start parking back up, I'm like right back into do all the things mode. And I need to remember that that's not what's actually going to serve me. Mm. I think it's another book that I really love is playing big by Tara Moore. It's written particularly for women. There's nuggets in it for everybody, but one of the things she talks about is this concept of your future self. And she does this beautiful, like meditation about your future self. But even just a small way that I bring that into my life is like, I got home the other day and I was like, Oh, I took the trash out yesterday. Thank you. Yesterday's me. Like, it's just (laughs) these little favors I do for my future self. And that example of like being so exhausted, but like having dinner and perking up a bit and thinking, Oh, I could get that other thing done. Like, no, my favor for my future self was to not do that because I know if I just went back into the, doing the things mode the next day, I wouldn't be as recovered. I wouldn't be as filled back up as if I just let myself have what I needed that night and just like watch some TV and zone out. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a way in which I think folks like you and I, we say to ourselves something along the lines of, I know I need to rest and I will get to that rest mm-hmm. after as I check as I off. It. <laughs> as soon as I earn it. After I've checked mm-hmm. off all these different boxes and run all these errands and go through all the emails I wanted to send out. And something that I have been opening myself a lot more up to these days is let's just flip it inside out. Yeah. It's like, let me actually go walk through nature for 10 mm-hmm. to 15 minutes mm-hmm. and don't think about anything. And if my mind wanders, just like you were saying, right, let's just get back to the present moment. That's what the mind yeah. does. It's going to wander. It's going to yep. think about stuff and try and it. Hey brain, thanks it for itself. doing your job. Hey brain, thanks for doing your job. Yeah. And I always come back feeling more connected and more centered and like, oh, this is actually a way more generative place to be in and way more sustainable. Yeah. But with for me, it's like the grooves are in so deep that it just it's where I give myself the grace and the patience with myself. Like, mm-hmm. hey, of course, Michael, this is where Chris and Neff's self-compassion work yeah. can be really great, right? It's like, oh, of course. Like you've been trained your whole life to operate this way. It's okay that you still. Honey,
1: you don't have to do it that way anymore. It's okay.
0: (laughs) I love that too. Oh, honey, you don't have to do it that way. (laughs) That's wonderful.
1: I'll often tell myself like, oh, that's not today's problem to solve. Like that's Tuesday's Laura's problem to solve. And like, that's, it's just another, and it's funny when my best friend says that to me all the time. She's like, you taught me that's not today's problem to solve. Like, I don't have to worry about that right now. And that's just a helpful thing to recognize, like, i deal with that on Tuesday when it's Tuesday's problem to figure this out. Like right now, mm-hmm. I just need to be here talking to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my listeners aren't going to be able to see this image, but it's like a lot of our life are like, we're clenching like this and Clenched we're twisting. Uh-huh. It's like this. And when, when we get, when shit hits the fan, we just grab harder. Mm-hmm. And it's the invitation I always come back to is the tattoo you have behind your ear. It's like, Hey, okay. I'm still, still holding it just yeah. fine right here. Like let's loosen yes. the grip. Let's yeah.
1: Hold let's it let loosely. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean there's um some of the other tools we talked about a few minutes ago. Like I have a daily meditation practice and, and my way of making that stick for over, I was very fits and spurts for a number of years, but now I'm like solidly into my third year of every single day. I replaced snooze with a 10 minute meditation on insight timer, like best swap out I've ever made. Like I was just a a loyal snooze person and I'm like, Oh, or I could just do this thing for 10 minutes. It actually sets me up for a wildly better day (laughs) than hitting snooze two or three times. But there's a a meditation teacher named Sarah Blondin. Um, Her stuff's on YouTube and insight timer and she's great. And one of the things she says is like, it's not, she says a lot of great things, but it's, It's not that we are surrendering and not putting, putting forth the effort. Like you don't just, you know, it's like the whole concept of manifesting. And then mm, I have mixed feelings about it, but it's like, I'm not just setting the intention and then not taking aligned action. Right. It has to be the both. And right. That's the, and again, not the, or like, yes, I have to have an intention. I have to have some clarity in some direction. And I need to take aligned action and aligned is the key because we can all busy ourselves, right? We can busy ourselves with anything and everything, with email, with text, with social media. You can busy with anything. But is that aligned to your intention? Is that aligned to what you're trying to create for yourself? I think that's where the real power comes in. Mm.
0: You're here. what, well, Sarah, I, I want to make sure. Sarah D-I-N. D-I-N. okay. So I'm going to, I'll make sure I link to that and every other resource that you named.
1: Which is beautiful.
0: I love it. That's one of my favorite things about having guests on is to compile the different resources that can be helpful. And you've named a bunch of really helpful ones. And Laura, is there anything else that we haven't already spoken about in today's conversation that you would like to bring in? Any wish for the audience or anything at all that comes up for you?
1: I think my wish for the audience would be to just notice the ways that you're kinder in your life to the people that you love than you are to yourself and see if you can maybe treat yourself a little bit more like the people in your life that you love, you know, whether that's how you think about having a bad day, you know, well, if a friend, I said this to a friend the other day, and I don't even remember the, Oh, like somebody had like the most minor of little fender benders and was like beating themselves up, up about it. And I looked at my friend and I said, what would you tell me? Mm -hmm. And they said that I'm glad you're okay. And that there is a lesson in it and that everything's actually fine. And I need to stop worrying about the what ifs. And I was like, Sounds pretty smart Yeah, (laughs) and it's not that easy, right? Like it's not a light switch. It doesn't immediately make you feel better about yourself, but it's a practice and it's a stepping stone and it's, you know, I believe in small steps. So look at the places in your life where you are much kinder to those that you love than you are to yourself. And what's a tiny little way that you can give yourself some of what you give to everyone else. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, just a, a couple more questions on my end. Awesome. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy?
1: Mm. (laughs) When I'm in my own head and one of my two cats does something ridiculous and makes me laugh. So my, (laughs) their nicknames are uh, squeaks in the belly because one is a tortie (laughs) and she just talks all the damn time. Um, And the other one has this habit of like, she just walks right in front of you and flops over and puts her belly up and the times when I don't almost trip over her, I just, I laugh endlessly at it. So it's always nice to notice, you know, even in the most difficult of days, if I'm in my tiny kitchen and one of them comes in and does something and I just start to laugh, Mm. it's such a gift. This is why Mm -hmm. we have animals.
0: Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you?
1: Hmm. I have a bunch of tattoos. Like I worked in corporate for a long time, so they're all in places that can very easily be hidden from like the job interview mentality. I think I have like seven and I think people would be really surprised about that.
0: Hmm. What are a couple of that? You already, you have have a let one. Um,
1: Not that people can see it, but I have this swirl symbol on my Uh wrist and this is actually, um, it's interesting. So my grandmother died a few years ago. We were cleaning out her home and I found this little clay pinch pot that I had made in elementary school and on the side of it, I had put a swirl of clay and, like, just my entire life, this symbol has been something that I was drawn to even before I had any conscious awareness of it. I have kind of like an artistic design on my one shoulder. I have the Gemini constellation on my other. There's a symbol for karma on one of my ankles. And I have a little frog, which is actually, a, she would hate this, but it was a memorial to that same grandmother weeks when she was in the hospital for the last few weeks of her life when uh, my family and I needed an escape. There's this like, Creek between the hospital and the parking lot. And you had to walk over a bridge and we would just stand there and look at the frogs for a little while to kind of recharge a little bit. Um, so. Grandmother mm. Memorial tattoo that she might hate, but it is what it is.
0: That's <laughs> sweet. I think she, yeah. I don't know her, but I think she'd appreciate. I think she might be okay with
1: it at this point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, before I ask the very final question, where would you invite my listeners to uh, connect with you online or otherwise? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So LinkedIn for sure. Um, I welcome any LinkedIn connections, messages, you know, hit me up. Um, Everything is uh, kind of the hub of everything is lauraheacock.com. You can get to the podcast from there, which is doing good business. I also... I'm editor in chief of a personal development blog called kind over matter. So that's a bunch of writers. It's kind of like an online magazine. So every day we have different writers all in the spirit of kindness. I write on Mondays and the rest of the week, you get to hear from other awesome people, but everything can be linked from larheacock.com or just find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to
0: connect. All right. Well, add those to the show notes as well. And the final question that I ask all of my guests, the podcast is called Mike's search for meaning. Mm. And I would love to know in Laura's terms, what does it mean to live a meaningful life?
1: Mm. To live a life that feels good to you, mm-hmm. not a life that is based on someone else's box or you know what someone else thinks that you should do. And this is, look, I'm, I'm 45 and I'm still working on making decisions that are just for me and not for other people. And again, I want to do that in a way that's an integrity. You know, I want to be around to support the people that I love and I can really push myself to dip into those decisions that are much more for me. So as long as the life feels good to you and you're not hurting anybody else, like obvious disclaimer, but living a life that feels good to you and aligned, I think is the definition of meaningful. Mm.
0: It's the, and comes back in there, right? It's living a life that feels great for me and is of service to other people. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And it's another one of the binaries that Mm -hmm. I've heard people get caught up in. It's like you either do a job that makes a lot of money or, you and you take care of yourself or you do something that's meaningful, but you don't make yeah. as much.
1: Right. Right.
0: Anyway, Laura, mm-hmm. it's been such a pleasure having so you on. Thank you. We, we covered so much ground and I loved getting to know more about you and, and the work that you do. And yeah, I, I experience you as someone who is really, even though you're doing something that feels great for you, you are doing something that is for the greater purpose of this, this planet, this society, And I really look up to and admire the work that you're doing. I learned so much from this conversation and there's going to be plenty for me to reflect back on. And you said that you teach what you need to learn the most. And I I experience you as doing a wonderful job of teaching it. So thank Mm -hmm. you for your gifts. Thank you for uh, sharing them with my audience today.
1: Thank you for that reflection. Yeah, oh, it's been great. So much fun. Thank you.
0: And uh, to all the listeners, I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening. Whenever you're listening, be kind to others, be kind to yourself and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose.